Chapter 9 Some curious fantasies had entered my head by about five o'clock. I imagined I was in a library. The walls were ten meters high, crammed to the roof with thousands of books. Although the rooms were cavernous and linked by dark hallways, I felt entombed there, looking for the answers to my questions. It could have been any question on my mind, from the most fundamental question about existence to the more practical, immediate questions that concerned me. I might have wanted to know something about mushrooms, for instance. Which ones were edible? Which ones were deadly? The trouble was, I could never find the right book or the section it was in. There would be all kinds of other stuff about dressmaking, costume design, books about modern cathedrals and social psychology, but nothing whatsoever to do with mushrooms, no matter where I looked. I had come across some actual mushrooms along the way, speckled brown ones sprouting cheerfully through the pine needle floor. There were also some bulbous red-capped things that looked lethal to me. I kicked a few of the more appealing ones over, but didn't dare eat any. Had I stooped down to pick one, I think I would have gobbled it up. Another fantasy I had was to do with my sense of being followed. I began to think it was me. I was following myself. The person following me was the person I had been before I completely forgot who he was. I called out to him. This was dangerously close to tripping myself up. Come on. Who are you? Come on. What are you waiting for? During these moments of confusion, something in me would take a step back. It was a technique that came naturally, like concentrating on my breathing, trying to slow it down, rolling my shoulders to relax the muscles in my neck, and permitting no further thoughts that could do damage or cloud my objectives. It was a kind of censoring. It also helped to actively appreciate something close to hand. Often the sound of the stream would do it, concentrating on that. Later, just looking at a pair of tall cedars helped enormously. They were higher up, but in plain view by then, arched towards each other like a gateway to somewhere better. As I walked, just glancing at those special trees acted as a signal for me to be calm again. I knew it was important to foster the right ideas, and by these virtuous means I managed to keep the sanest possible thoughts for company striking a balance between the chasm of difficulty I found myself in and the need to remain rational. I was alert not only to the dangers, but also to the opportunities that might arise from time to time. Strangely enough, I began to hear the lyric of a song. The singer had an American voice, and there were punchy rhythms with horns backing him up. The words... You've got to go over, or else you'll go under, filled my brain. I used this line to block out my fears, moving along with the words, You've got to go over, as if they could propel me over the mountain. 
an hour of singing this, and I saw I would be out of the forest by just following the stream up, two or three hundred meters more. It was a gentle flow, but at one time it must have been torrential. I was impressed by how wide a groove it had cut down the slope as I got higher and closer to those splendid arching cedars. They'd become the absolute focus for me, the destination. I could see the line the stream made right up to them. It was a straight up and down groove of loose earth and rocks and roots and the small skull of an animal every so often with not much more than a trickle of water running through it in places but always enough to create glints in the sunlight. I felt more able to use the stream as a path by then, although I had to work harder at the steeper inclines, slipping on shale more and more often. My jacket constantly unraveled from around my waist, falling to the ground. I must have picked it up a hundred times before I succumbed to a shower of mosquitoes and wrapped it around my head again. I discovered then that chewing on the silk lining provided a numbing kind of comfort. It was by accident that I spotted the eggs. I'd tripped over the loose sole on my left shoe, scraping my left knee. Hanging my shrouded head, I yelped in pain. The edge of a small rock had punctured my right palm as I came down. The arm hurt more than ever. I took a deep breath, and it came out as a long moan. But these were no more than inconveniences. I'd worked out how best to handle a low-level crisis like this one. I was aware I needed to dispel any frustration or anger working its way into my reactions. I could feel it coming on, hot and bothered, like the faint rumble of a stampede. I wanted to scream and hit someone. Instead, I pictured the coldest thing I could think of, which happened to be a refrigerated transport with whole pigs inside, stomachs slid open and hanging by their hind legs. I thought about the driver with his blood-smeared apron. He would have to wear gloves and a couple of thick jumpers to work in the back of his ice-cold truck, hauling freshly killed pigs out for the butcher trade or a supermarket delivery. It did the trick, and the attack soon passed. I was able again to cope with my surroundings. I took my jacket off my head. I stood and looked around, thinking someone might have seen what had happened, and maybe they were finding it all very funny. I checked my palm. There were a few grazes and a deeper wound, about a millimeter long, with a dark ooze of blood coming from it. I picked out the bits of rock embedded there and spat on it, because I recalled that spit can act as a disinfectant. Close to where I was standing, there was a good-sized nest that must have fallen out of its tree. I wouldn't have seen it had I not tripped over. I looked up and saw a few others like it, wedged high into the branches of some chestnuts flanking the stream. I couldn't tell what kind of bird was building these nests, but as I approached, I saw two small eggs in the one that had come down. They were sky blue, almost purple, with black speckles on them. They weren't cracked or broken. 
The impact must have been cushioned by the nest, which had come apart in the middle. There were some downy feathers caught in its twigs, as well as a more mature-looking feather, jet black. I imagined a crow or a jackdaw. My bleeding hand reached out for the food before I had time to consider what I was doing. I could see what was happening before it happened. It was an instinct to crack one of those small eggs into my mouth, no matter what the consequences, an instinct that would prevail whether I liked it or not. I broke the thing over my lips and sucked out the slimy contents, along with bits of shell I didn't dare spit out. I was so hungry. I threw the rest away and licked my fingers one by one. The second egg wasn't so easy. I counted myself lucky there hadn't been a little bird inside the first one, ready to hatch, and I would have to have eaten that too, bones and feathers and all. I already felt sick at what I'd done, and the second egg certainly made me nervous, but I went for it anyway, crushing it in my palm and sucking it out of the hole at the bottom of my fist. In this way, I was able to drink the fluid, while at the same time preventing much of the shell from getting into my mouth. Chapter 10 the bus jolted before turning into the narrowest lane of the journey. So narrow there was no passing space. Each time he got to this section of road, rain or shine, the driver had to lean out and bend his wing mirror in. He had his windshield wipers on, but it only seemed to smear his view. They squeezed down the lane, good for horses and carts. Branches in the hedges scraped along the sides of the bus. Nobody seemed to notice. It seemed there were never more than a few others traveling onto the moor from town. Anya and Jamie were unused to it. They sat in different seats, not talking. They had their new blue and gray uniforms on. Their blazers were scuffed and stained. Neither of them could be fussed to straighten their ties. The bus turned onto a heavily wooded hill, shrouded in swaying branches. The driver strained up the steep incline in first gear, then over a cattle grid, onto a desolate rolling plain where he could shift down and his passengers could relax again. Anya saw herself in the hunched, thorny trees of that barren landscape. There was a swollen stream to cross, and far off she saw the granite outcrop of some tor or other she didn't care about, looking straight through it. Jamie had been playing an app on his mobile ever since he got out of school, making its ugly bleeps every time he scored points and the most aggravating tune jamming Anya's brain. She was chewing gum as fast as she could, staring at nothing. Once in the open, they had to go another mile along the B road that crossed up to where the prison was. That was the most interesting feature on the moor. Anya moved herself over the heating vents in the back seat, dreading having to get out, thinking about being in a prison. She could already see the post box further on, and the road they would have to walk down to get to their village. She grabbed her school bag and lurched forward, passing the runt still deep in his gizmo game. 
As she went, she made sure the side of her bag swiped the back of his head. Jamie tried shoving her while they waited for the driver to stop and let them out, but she ignored him. They walked along the road that dipped into a valley. It was nothing more than two brown round hills with a church and a few houses cowering in the cleavage. It was grey and windy. The shadowy parts had turned purple. There were spits of drizzle in the air. The contrast with the extreme warmth of the bus made the going seem worse. A pony and her foal, chewing grass by the side of the road, looked up, thinking lumps of sugar, but they didn't get any. The kids in blue and grey walked on, hostile to each other, to the day around them, and to the bleakness they were in. Jamie quickly crossed the road so he didn't have to walk on the same side as Anya. He huddled into his blazer, pulling it right over the top of his head. He walked like that all the way to the house, looking like a blue yeti. He went past the Belfry Inn and the church, before crossing back and entering the private drive where Anya had already gone. It was after half past four. It was getting dark. Teresa had put a log on the fire, expecting her children any time soon. There was a beef stew bubbling on the range, and the combinations of wood smoke and boiling meat soothed her so much, it was almost pleasurable to be in such a dire situation. For a spell, Teresa had forgotten why she and her children were there. She permitted herself that short moment of pleasure before it struck her like a migraine coming back. She was still in the new period of anguish. It was a predicament that had preoccupied her so thoroughly she'd actually developed bulging pains at the top of her head, stretching down past her temples. Each time she managed to forget, she briefly recovered a quick kind of innocence before being plunged back into what this was all about. She was straining every sinew to give her family continuity after what had happened. Impossible as it was for any of them to make sense of, she still hoped Anya and Jamie would accept the transition she'd imposed on them. It didn't take long to organize, and the people at the new school had been extremely helpful. As expected, Anya couldn't stop complaining about how dismal it all was. And she was right. Everything was strange and sad. The children were missing their London friends. But at least this was a home they knew. They'd spent their summers in it. It was a thatched longhouse, tucked behind the church, and in many ways closer to Teresa's heart than their home in London had ever been. It had thick, uneven walls, dinky windows, and a heavy front door with iron straps. It had a magnificent wisteria climbing along the exposed eaves. It was listed in William the Conqueror's Doomsday Survey, Great Doomsday, Volume 1. Teresa never tired of appending this fact to her knowledge of the place. It was so ancient and solid, she felt certain they would be safer living there. They would heal and do the best they could. Barry had bought it as a holiday home, and as a way of making links with Teresa's mother and brother, who still lived in the county. At the time he bought it, Barry might have had half an eye on his retirement. It had been fun for a couple of summers, 
before it became apparent that he wasn't cut out for the role of country squire, and they all started hankering after proper holidays again, escaping instead to the most far-off places they could think of. Those days were over, though. Everything was on its head. Teresa had been forced to follow her instincts and was trying to make the best of a new twist in her life. She'd accepted an offer on the house in London and was prepared now to carry on with her existence in a stoically different way. Anya came through the door first. She leaned her shoulder against it, shoving it to with a clank. She kicked her shoes off, glad to be out of the misery outside. There was a fine, wet sheen over her hair and face. She looked good. She smiled at her mother. Despite everything, she went over and gave her mother a hug. Teresa was so startled, tears welled in her eyes as she stroked Anya's wet hair. Then Jamie burst in, resentful about something. That's right, he said. Shut the door in my face, why don't you? He threw his school bag to the slate tiles and struggled out of his dripping blazer. Teresa yearned to hug Jamie too, but knew he wouldn't come to her while his sister was being hugged. She couldn't very well push Anya away. Any sign of affection was too precious for that. She longed to hug them both, though. She tried propping her voice up with a happiness that was bound to sound false. What a horrid day, she said. Jamie ignored the whole sordid scene. Anya deliberately hugging his mother and Mum bleating something about the weather. He stamped his shoes, brushing the wet off as he retreated to the lounge, dragging his blazer after him like an animal he'd just killed. A moment later they could hear him stomping up the stairs. When he was gone, Annie looked up and smiled again, more ironic this time. We're back, she said. She broke away from the embrace with a dark flicker in her eyes. It was a sudden, overturning gesture. What's for supper, she said, going to the range. I smell dead meat. Teresa evened out her feelings. She knew how to do that. By now she was an expert. Stew, she said. Have you got much homework? Anya was still frowning badly. I don't want to hear any complaints, Teresa said. You know I don't eat meat. Eat what you can. It's mainly vegetables. Mixed up with meat. Leave the meat then. I'd rather eat styrofoam. Don't be absurd. Teresa was determined to promote in Anya something approaching a balanced diet. It was a semblance of the old order that had survived from life in London. Anya, she felt, was too young to decide to be a vegan. Alarmed by her daughter's weight loss, and unable to accept that the girl could make such an important decision without medical advice, not even following some kind of nutritional plan, Teresa let herself fall into another clash of wills and raised voices. As the argument about food escalated below, Jamie stole into Anya's bedroom. He was on a commando raid. He'd been planning this mission all day, and there would never be a better opportunity. His strategy would prove deadly. 
he'd identified a single weakness in his sister's defenses. Although she'd gone all Japanese anime and veggie-brained, looking for a new identity, Anya still had one powerful link with her girly past. It was her teddy bear, Lizzie, a moth-eaten creature she couldn't bring herself to throw away. It lived in her bed, under her pillow. The object of Jamie's mission was to abduct Lizzie. He would later put Lizzie on trial for all the terrible blows that had been dealt to him over the years at the hands of his big sister. He got changed into some outdoorsy combat things. A uniform of trainers, jeans, and a dark hoodie. Hood up and pulled in tight so only his nose and eyes were visible, he crept through Anya's doorway. He made his way deep towards her bed, avoiding the symbols of witchery and curses she had tacked to the walls to ward off strangers. Carefully, he pulled down the bed cover. Even Lizzie, Jamie discovered, had a silver skull pinned to its fur. It had one eye missing. He wedged it into the pocket of his fleece, then backed out of the room, pretending to be armed with an AK-47, aiming it with sudden movements in case the alarm was raised and he would have to shoot his way out. Teresa had managed to restore calm by not insisting that Anya eat any meat, but persuading her that she should try to eat at least a portion of vegetables from the stew. She maintained that Anya would be able to sieve the meat out. There wouldn't be so much as a sliver on Anya's plate. She stuck to that line until finally Anya relented on the condition that she could watch TV straight away and do her homework some other time. It was a relief to have stopped arguing. They were both relieved. It seemed scarier nowadays to argue. Teresa laid the table for three, imagining how she might distract her daughter from noticing just a lump or two of beef on her plate. Animated conversation about devils on the moor might do the trick, she thought. There were all kinds of devil tales to tell about this part of the country. Her own mother instantly came to mind, and Teresa laughed inwardly at that, then felt the sadness again. These were the pleasant, ordinary thoughts that at some point, never too far off, would be engulfed by the bigger crisis they were going through, and she would have to stop what she was doing and build herself up again. Barry had lost his mind, and nothing could ever be the same again. There was no refuge from this. Even the people closest to Teresa were changing as a result. Her mother had let the jealousy of many years show through. It came in the form of a contemptuous pity in all their I-told-you-so conversations. Teresa couldn't speak to her mother about it anymore, and seldom spoke to her brother or the rest of the family, none of whom were nearly as wealthy. She hadn't told her brother about Barry's collapse, nor would she. She would let her mother do it. She'd sent a round-robin email to Barry's family, trying to play the whole affair down. He'd been overstressed at work, she'd written. But they weren't to worry. Barry was in excellent care, and she was in constant communication with his doctors. In this way, she'd managed to keep the subject at arm's length. The others would have their own problems. 
Certainly, Camilla Binden had her problems. Apart from the tearful exchanges over mugs of tea some weeks before, Teresa and Camilla had said nothing of the bombs exploding over their lives. They knew they were being torn apart. Teresa looked out of the window at the darkening hills, still astounded by the way things had turned out, at the upheaval of it all, then went on laying the table for three. At the same time, the expeditionary raid had been highly successful. All Jamie had to do now was get back to his own lines. He showed considerable bravery, performing his stealthy withdrawal from the danger zone. There was one problem he was having to deal with. It had been the only flaw in an otherwise remarkably thorough and well-executed plan. Jamie had intended to make his escape through a back door into the garden, but realized he would have to return to the kitchen first because that's where he'd left his school bag. It is essential during missions of this nature, he told himself, that all operatives keep a cool head. He who dares wins. Jamie took a deep breath and walked close to the walls, through the lounge, lowering his hood in case Anya thought he was going somewhere and got curious. In fact, Anya was watching TV and didn't even glance at him. Next was his mother, busy in the kitchen. Luckily, she was so tranced out, she hardly noticed him either. Jamie grabbed his school bag and slipped away without his mother even turning around. He jogged up the private drive, pulling his hood tight over his head again. The executioner's hood, he thought. The weather was still foul and darker now, with streaks of light to the west. He could see the clouds slurring against the hills over the village. He reached into his school bag and slung a few grenades into villagers' houses along the way. He took out the church as well, just in case anyone was waiting to ambush him from the entrance. But there was no one about. Jamie went unchallenged. Shortly after six, he was deep in the woods. By the time he scrambled up the hill to the small cave that was base camp, he'd made a mental list of some of the bad things Lizzie's mistress had done to him. He dwelled on her contempt of him, her bullying tactics, and her constant teasing. In short, all the injuries Anya had inflicted over the years. The trial was summary, and justice would be immediate. Anya's teddy bear Lizzie would not be given the right of appeal, and there would be no special clemency after sentence was passed. In Jamie's school bag there was a cardboard box. He'd brought it along especially. Inside was a plastic bag packed with ground charcoal, some sulfur, and a pinch of potassium nitrate to get it all fizzing up. This was a homemade explosive device Jamie had been preparing in chemistry and had completed only that day. The fuse was a length of touch paper sticking out of a hole he'd cut into the side of the box. He held the wretched bear to the sky and made his voice sound big. Lizzie, he said, you have been found guilty and will be taken from this court to a place of execution where you will be blown to tiny little bits 
and may God have mercy on your soul. He squeezed Lizzie into the box and replaced the lid. It took a while to choose where to put the box. Jamie decided to put it by a boulder so he could shelter his matches from the wind. He got the matches out and struck a flame to the fuse. As he ran down the hill, the box blew. There was a muffled whumping behind him, and he swung around, still running. When he walked back, it was to a scene of sweet and perfect devastation, even better than he'd imagined. There were swirls of blue smoke and scorched cardboard. Parts of Lizzie lay in the bushes and the grass, and there was a smell like burning horseradish in the air. Jamie couldn't contain his glee. He breathed deeply until the smoke stung his nostrils. He shouted angrily and laughed as he searched for bits of Anya's teddy bear. The biggest bit he recovered was part of the torso, with its leg hanging off. Lizzie's head had been blown clear to oblivion, 